Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today, the massacre on the Las Vegas Strip. Yet another stark reminder of America's extraordinary gun problem. The time to talk about it is now, and that is what we are going to do for this entire show. What can we learn from other countries? What does the Second Amendment actually say? What could the United States government do to keep its citizens safer? Call this the Stop the Madness show. And now here's my take. He was a sick man, a demented man. That was Donald Trump trying to explain the latest mass shooting in the United States. We hear this view expressed routinely after every new incident. But it is a dodge, a distortion of the facts, and a cop-out as to the necessary response. There's no evidence that the Las Vegas shooter was insane. You'll notice, by the way, I prefer not to use his name and give him publicity, even posthumously. We won't show his photo either. He did not have a history of mental illness that we know of, nor had he been reported for behavior that would suggest any such condition. He was clearly an evil man, but evil is not crazy. If we define the attempt to take an innocent human being's life as madness, then of course every murderer is mad. If not, we should recognize it is a meaningless term that adds little to our understanding of the problem. Actually, the quick assumption of mental illness distorts the discussion. First, it smears people who do have mental disorders. Such people are not inherently highly prone to violence. They are more often than not victims of violence than perpetrators. And to the extent that some are violent, they are more likely to inflict harm on themselves. Second, turning immediately to the sickness of the shooter and piously calling for better mental health care is more often than not an attempt to divert attention from the main issue, guns. Every conversation about gun deaths should begin by recognizing one blindingly clear fact about this problem. The United States is on its own planet. The gun death rate in the U.S. is 10 times that of other advanced industrial countries. Places like Japan and South Korea have close to zero gun-related deaths in a year. The United States has around 30,000. This disparity is the central fact that needs to be studied, explained, and addressed. When seen in this light, it becomes obvious why focusing on mental health is a dodge. The rate of mental illness in the United States is not 40 times the rate in Britain, but the rate of gun deaths is 40 times higher than in Britain. Now, America does have about 15 times as many guns as Britain per capita, 
and far fewer restrictions on their ownership and use. And this is not simply a case of America being different from the rest of the world. Data that look carefully at gun violence across America's states finds a similarly tight correlation. Those states that have some of the highest percentages of gun ownership have among the most gun-related deaths. And those with some of the lowest rates of gun ownership generally have the fewest deaths. How to tackle this issue is a more complex problem, made particularly difficult by the fact that we refuse to study it, literally. One of the main government agencies that sponsors research on public health, the Centers for Disease Control, has been virtually forbidden by law from doing any research on gun violence and public policy for two decades. A law championed by the NRA essentially prohibits the CDC from sponsoring research that might advocate or promote gun control. So in America, in 2017, we have a ban on scientific research that might lead to inconvenient conclusions. Given the Second Amendment, given America's gun culture, given the influence of the gun lobby, there isn't any simple answer. But there are many small fixes that might make a big difference. Universal background checks, restrictions on military-style weaponry, of which banning bump stocks would be a tiny first step, a ban on selling to people with a history of domestic violence or substance abuse. But first, we have to stop the dodges and the diversions. When you consider America's stubborn inaction in the face of this continuing and preventable epidemic of gun violence, I sometimes wonder if it is all of us Americans who are crazy. For more, go to cnn.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's dig deeper into America's gun problem and how the world sees it with three guests, all of whom had interesting, insightful columns this week about it. Thomas Friedman is the author of Thank You for Being Late. He is, of course, also a New York Times op-ed columnist. His column this week envisioned how different it would have been if the Las Vegas shooter had been Muslim. David Frum is a senior editor at The Atlantic. His article this week for that publication was Mass Shootings Don't Lead to Inaction. They lead to loosening gun restrictions. And Leah Labresco is a statistician who used to write for 538. I'll tell you about her piece in just a moment. Tom, l let me ask you what you meant when you said that uh, this, this event would have been dealt with very differently if the guy had been a Muslim. Well, let's begin by the fact, Fareed, that uh, had this been an attack by a Muslim related to ISIS or al-Qaeda, it actually would have been the second largest terrorist attack uh, in America, uh, the largest terrorist attack, I should say, since 9-11. Um, and we know how President Trump reacts to those kind of events. We know as a society how we react. Uh, the president immediately tweets when there's a terrorist incident in Europe. He doesn't even wait for the facts um, uh, and immediately politicizes them. Uh, we know he's trying to impose a ban on uh, uh, predominantly Muslim countries. Uh, to prevent people traveling here who he thinks would commit terrorist acts. He's trying to build a wall on the Mexican border. I'm sure we would have had a nonpartisan commission to investigate how this act happened, who, who let these people through. We, we know what happens when, uh, when there's an incident like this uh, from our own history. And of course, um, in this case, uh, basically nothing's happening. There's some talk of uh, you know, limiting the uh, amplification mechanism this guy used to more rapidly fire bullets. But um, uh, 
uh, you know, when, when, when the perpetrator is a foreign country, we immediately say, what was the country of origin and how do we attack this? And how do we prevent it from ever happening again? When the country of origin is us, then we hear no evil, speak no evil, and say no evil. Uh, and David, from of course, the numbers are staggering, right? I mean, something like under 100 people have been killed in terrorist attacks since 9-11, and we have spent trillions of dollars on it. Uh, and meanwhile, something like 150,000 people have died of gun deaths since since 9-11. And as you point out, gun laws keep getting looser after each of these events. Right. Why is that? Um, because public opinion believes that guns make you safer. Um, one of the, there are many illusions in this debate. Um, one of them is that the great and good American people want gun control and are thwarted by a few um, selfish interest groups. Unfortunately, that's not true. Um, the great and good American people believe, uh, and that belief has been rising over the past 20 years, that guns make them safer. And it's, it's just not considered politic to say the great and good people, American people are wrong. They're wrong about that. They're mistaken. Guns are in the home. Make uh, are, are dangerous. If you keep a gun in your house, you're putting your children at risk. Suicide, accident, homicide. Um, we restrict ourselves to certain topics because we have such a powerful vested interest. And as a result, we have reached a point where it is perfectly legal in 44 of the 50 states for a gunman to strap a weapon of war around his neck, walk to within a certain number of paces of a school, you typically a thousand paces, and so long as he doesn't take the, the pace to the 90, 999th pace, no one can say anything to him. If you want to have gun safety, you have to begin with the assumption that gun ownership is a privilege, not a right, and that gun owners can be checked for the responsibility that they say they have and so often lack. Um, you know, David, David Brooks of the New York Times uh, uh, used your column as a starting off point, and his argument is that the reason we have this, this uh, increase in support for guns is that people are confronting a kind of post-industrial world in which there's very little that gives them a sense of almost tribal emotional yeah. security and guns play that role does that does that strike you as right I think that's right. And one, one of the rules, again, of this debate is we have to act as if the desire for gun ownership is rational. No matter how blatantly the fantasies are expressed, no matter how blatantly the racial feel, fears and the sexual anxieties. I mean, a lot of this is about reasserting a man's place in a world in which many American men feel displaced. Um, after all, how can you be a loser if you're able to kill so many people? Uh, Tom Friedman, you travel the world a lot. How do you think people are reacting uh, around the world to, to something like this? Well, Fried, I want to go back to your, your point um, uh, about David Brooks' article that this is sure. in many ways a, a cultural phenomenon. And I think we're facing uh, two of those. I, I think the, uh, the response of, of the very same people to the threat of climate change is also really based on, on culture. Uh, it's based on a, a certain identity marker that, um, you know, real, real men don't believe in climate change. But basically, if you step back and think about what we're saying, in the wake of the two most ferocious hurricanes in the Atlantic, uh, that we've ever recorded that have caused now about $200 billion in damage. And in the wake of a mass killing in Las Vegas that um, has, has killed almost 60 people and wounded, you know, four or 500 others, we have a party, the Republican Party, that is saying the right response to both of those things for their kids and the future of the country is to do nothing. And that is a travesty. Well, and, um, you know, as, as um, Leah, you point out, I've, I've pointed out, uh, there is even essentially a ban on doing any kind of research on this issue. When we come back, so is gun control the answer? Maybe not. Leah Labresco will tell us 
what she found when she studied the subject. And we are back with Tom Friedman, David Frum, and Leah Labresco. Um, Leah, you wrote a, uh, an article that went viral in the Washington Post uh, that was titled, I used to think gun control was the answer. My research told me otherwise. Why don't you quickly summarize what you meant? Well, when I started looking much more deeply at uh, proposals in gun control, what I found is that some gun control proposals are simply incoherent. Uh, we saw both Hillary Clinton and Kane um, this week praise limiting silencers as a response to the Las Vegas shooting, when silencers you know, are badly named. They don't make guns silent. They make them slightly quieter, but still very noisy. Um, and this is the kind of thing I had repeated um, hearing this praised, uh, hearing assault weapons bans praised when assault weapons are just a gun that has too many features snapped onto it like Lego bricks at point of sale. Once you take it home, you can add them back on yourself. Um, so those kinds of policies are just often incoherent. They sound like they're posed by someone who doesn't know anything about guns. And they erode the credibility of politicians proposing more serious solutions. But, but I have to say, you know, I'm, I, I looked at your, uh, your article and I was struck by the fact that this is a very complicated subject and there's so many variables that, you know, it's very difficult to find a very tight correlation. <laughs> but there is one mammoth study of studies. This is usually the kind of scientific gold standard in the Journal of Epidemiology, which points out that there's overwhelming evidence that uh, tighter gun control, fewer guns has an impact. You can see it by the fact that the United States has 10 times as many gun deaths as any uh, other advanced country. You can see it within American uh, states, the countries that have more, the states that have more guns versus the states that have fewer. Uh, it felt like you were trying to find a controversial conclusion and then cherry pick the evidence to support it. Not at all. I really believe that if there were a lot fewer guns tomorrow magically in the U.S., we'd see a lot fewer gun deaths simply because guns would not be available to people you know, at the moment of considering suicide, at the moment of being angry as easily when committing a crime. But the question is what policies could actually get us to that place. So what I looked at was policies in Britain and Australia uh, looking at the marginal change caused by gun bans and gun buybacks. And in both of those countries, you didn't kind of see that that massive, exciting shift I honestly wanted to see. Um, it didn't transform a country into a much lower gun prevalence country, partly because when you do a buyback, you're not sure which guns you're buying back. But it's also because in many of these cases, in Britain, for example, the, the, the rates of violence are so low That's that it's true. almost impossible to tell what the... Uh, Except in England, the gun deaths yeah. kept rising after their buyback. Um, uh, which doesn't mean that it made it worse. It just means that whatever else was going on may have swamped whatever effect it has. But, you know, as a data person looking at this data, um, I would root for a clearer result from gun buybacks program. And instead, you see a rise in England uh, after well, the buyback. From, from a tiny number to a slightly higher And tiny in Australia, number. a drop. In Australia, a drop. Yeah. But at the yeah. same time, a drop in non-gun homicides and non-gun suicides, which makes it hard for me mm. to honestly say, I'm confident this will make a difference. So what, what I mean, I guess the question then becomes, how do you explain the extraordinary uh, reality that the United States has 40 times as many gun deaths as Britain? 30 times as many as France, almost 75 times as many as Japan, uh, other than guns. I mean, do we have 75 times more crazy people than, than these countries? Do we have 75 times more violent video games than these? The only thing we have more of is guns. I do think that's a major driving factor. But the question is, when people say this worked in England, this will work in America, Will it actually? Um, if tomorrow we woke up and there had been a gun rapture and all these guns had vanished, 
um, I would expect there to be fewer deaths. But of the actual policies being put forward, will they have the effect of making America suddenly a country that doesn't have this many guns and doesn't have the attachment to them? Uh, David, uh, David from... Leia is saying one thing that is true and one thing that is really alarmingly false. The thing that is, is false is the suggestion that there are other alternatives that would work better, that are more, as she says in the article, more narrowly tailored. In fact, the alternatives to gun control are all vastly more intrusive and more coercive uh, and more expensive. Um, there are 20, for example, if we're going to identify men at risk, older men at risk of depression, there are 23 million men in the United States over the age of 65. That's a lot of people we have to inspect. There are a lot of domestic disputes. There are a lot of young men at risk of violence. And oh, by the way, the overwhelmingly predictive factor about those young men is race. So that means our, our screening is going to be highly racially loaded. Um, the reason this debate is so complicated is because the obvious and correct answer is so politically prohibited. The intellectual debate is simple. The political debate is complicated. So my solution, and this is, I think, th that is the thing in Leia's article that is true, is that the in interventions that are discussed in the United States will not make any difference. The intervention we need is the beginning of a cultural change. And let me give you an example. It is legal in all but eight states. It is legal for a mother to strap her child into a car seat, roll up the windows, and smoke a couple of packs of cigarettes. Mothers don't do that because they love their children, and even though they may. So let's start by pounding into people's heads the idea, if you keep a gun in your house because you want to protect your children, you think you're a good parent, you are, in fact, a bad parent. You're putting the gun at risk. If you are, if you, you are accumulating all these weapons because you think you're a responsible gun owner, the very fact that you're doing it proves you're an irresponsible person. Change the social view, and then, we'll be then legal changes will become possible. Tom Friedman, last word. Well, you know, I happened to read factcheck.org this morning about the Australian uh, laws, basically. They had a mass murder there in 1996. They imposed a um, very stringent ban on um, auto automatic weapons and, and other registration uh, points, and then did a massive gun buyback. Between and, and it has not been a dramatic drop off, but it's down 20 percent uh, since 1996. That's not beanbag. A country that has the most probably stringent gun laws in the world is called Japan. We have about 12,000 gun deaths a year. Uh, they had a year uh, the a uh, couple of years back where they had two. Um, 22 for them uh, caused the national crisis. So it can be done. I do agree. You've got to find the right ways to do it. And we may not be talking about them, but it can be done. We're going to have to leave it at that. We will doubtless come back to this. Thank you all for a fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, the Second Amendment. What did the 27 words of that amendment mean when they were written in 1789? What do they mean today? Constitutional law scholar from Yale, Akhil Reed Amar, joins me when we come back. On December 15, 1791, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution were ratified. They formed what we call the Bill of Rights. The second of those amendments was comprised of these seemingly simple 27 words. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. They might be the most debated 27 words in the English language. Listen to what former Chief Justice of the United States, Warren Burger, a conservative nominated by Richard Nixon, had to say in 1991 about the amendment. This has been the subject of one of the greatest pieces of fraud, I repeat the word fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. 
I want to bring in one of America's finest constitutional scholars to discuss Berger's words and more broadly, what the Second Amendment means. Akhil Amar is a law professor at Yale University. Um, <clears throat> so what, what Berger was talking about there was the fact that in his view, um, there had been a reinterpretation of the Second Amendment in the 1970s to, to claim that individuals have this un, inalienable, unviable right, inviable right to own uh, firearms. But you say actually the Second Amendment has gone through many interpretations. So, so take us through a kind of very brief history sure. of the Second Amendment. And it's not unique. That's true of the First Amendment, too. So we have a vision at the founding, and the vision emphasizes militias because America has just fought a revolutionary war, local militias against an imperial center, Lexington, Concord, Bunker Hill. It's very Tea Party, anti-federalist, localist, military, collective. That's the first vision. And that's probably where it comes out of in the terms of the actual the, the, writing. The initial language. But then America's history is often defined by our wars, especially our constitutional wars. The next big constitutional war is the Civil War. And in that war, the central government are the heroes, the Union Army, and, and the, uh, the Constitution is amended, and it's amended with a different vision of arms bearing. So after the, the Civil War, the National Rifle Association actually is founded. It's a group of ex-Union Army officers, and they believe that there should be an individual right to have a gun in your home for self-protection. So original vision, very um, military and collective. This second vision, after after the Civil War, individualistic, where we get a very strong affirmation of a right to have a gun in your home for self-protection. So then bring us to the 1970s and what happened? So in the 1960s and 70s, well, the liberals say, well, we want stronger protection of freedom of speech and of the press and, and religion and the rights of criminal defendants. This is the Warren Court Revolution, uh, and, and the courts start to more vigorously enforce the, the, uh, these civil liberties. And, and other groups come along, like the NRA, and say, wait a minute, if you're going to enforce the first in a vigorous way and the fourth amendment uh, against unreasonable searches and seizures in a more vigorous way and uh, fifth and sixth amendment rights of criminal defendants, what about the second? Um, and so the NRA starts to try to reinvigorate um, uh, the second amendment and and true to its own roots as an organization, tends to emphasize this individual right. There's pushback initially to people like Warren Berger. This seems like a new idea. Um, it does seem to me that, uh, you know, the Berger's point uh, is correct in one sense, which is uh, th this is a very oddly phrased amendment. Um, the first, uh, you know, the first clause kind of makes no sense in the sense that what follows doesn't follow logically. So how does one think of it? What he seems to be saying is clearly the founders meant this was in the context of a militia. Uh, otherwise, why are those words there? I think he has a point about the founding. But in the same way the founder says, said in the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech on the press. But today, of course, we say, gee, the president can't interfere with free speech and neither can federal courts. And by the way, neither can states or localities. We have a broader view, and rightly so, because after the Civil War, there was a new amendment passed. It's called the 14th Amendment. And it actually says, and here's its language, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge 
the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. What are those privileges or immunities? Basic rights, fundamental rights. And where do we find them? In the Bill of Rights, but we have a different understanding of the Bill of Rights than the founders did. And we also find them, one final thing, if you look at state constitutions, almost all of them today, and indeed in the 1860s, um, now almost all of them have today, and in the 1860s did have strong affirmations of gun rights without often mention of militias. So um, looking at this uh, spate of gun violence and looking at the fact that the United States stands so uh, uh, far apart from the rest of the world, um, if people want to do something about it, uh, what do you say as a constitutional scholar, what is the leeway for American law and regulation to do something about gun violence. I'm uh, a Democrat, I'm a liberal, I don't have a gun in my own home, they scare me a, a, a bit. Um, th uh, that said, I think we liberals should concede what the Supreme Court has twice affirmed um, in uh, recent years, that people do have a right to have a gun in their home for self-protection, and once we concede that, then we can talk about reasonable regulations that are short of total confiscation, and the other side won't say, ah, every single thing that you propose, howsoever reasonable, is the first step on a slippery slope that will lead to total confiscation. Akhil Ridamar, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Next on GPS, I have a message to all who say gun control legislation will never happen in a country whose politics is dominated by conservatives. You're wrong. I'll show you a country where a conservative government did actually pass serious gun control legislation after a massacre. Indeed, I will introduce you to a conservative farmer turned deputy prime minister who was instrumental in keeping his nation safer from guns. In 1996, Australia experienced the worst mass shooting in its history. 35 people were shot to death at a popular tourist destination in Port Arthur, Tasmania. A nation in mourning decided that enough was enough. A conservative government, that is right, a conservative government, passed strict gun control laws and bought back over 600,000 guns already in circulation in this gun-loving nation. In the decade that followed, gun homicides fell 59% and gun suicides plummeted 65%, according to one study. Here to tell us all about it is Tim Fisher, the deputy prime minister at the time, who helped to get the measures passed. Mr. Fisher, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Greetings, Farid, and CNN. Um, when people think about the rest of the world, they tend to think that uh, countries outside of the United States have a very different culture uh, and attitude towards guns. But Australia is not so different. It's a settler society with a frontier culture, and people have a long and proud history of gun ownership. Uh, was that hard? To, was it hard to introduce the kind of measures you did, given that culture? It was hard, but... Uh... John Howard, the then Prime Minister, and myself as Deputy Prime Minister, uh, we just had to muscle up. We had to make a set of decisions uh, and negotiate with the states and then take the arguments to the public square full on. And step by step, uh, uh, John Howard, myself and many others uh, won the arguments, notwithstanding some intervention by the NRA 
into the Australian scene uh, to uh, try and upend our efforts down here. Uh, the part of the country you came uh, come from is actually particularly proud of its of its guns and and the gun culture. Were you? Um, what was the argument you made to, to people who had uh, guns? You're a farmer yourself, you're a gun owner yourself? Yes, I am. I'm a Vietnam veteran as well, and I speak to you just a few kilometres from uh, gun shops in Aubrey, Wodonga. Uh, and we, we have a law-abiding gun culture in this country. I am not anti-gun. I do not hate guns. There is a proper role for guns for Australian farmers to this day and continuing, but we have drained the suburbs and towns of Australia uh, of semi-automatics most notably and of course automatics and that is a good thing and it stacks up when you see uh, the outcome in terms of no mass gun shootings for 21 years since 1996. You think the fundamental thing that is lacking is courage among America's uh, politicians. I've heard you say that before, correct? I realise I respect for democracy and I respect the Second Amendment uh, as it is printed, as it is worded, including its mention of the word militia. But uh, there are times, in one sense, uh, it's always difficult to find the exact right time, but I sense this particular period, this few days uh, after this mass shooting uh, in Vegas, 10-1, Vegas 10-1, uh, 1st of October, over 50 people cut down, over 500 wounded. Uh, you just cannot do nothing in that circumstance. And uh, I note uh, in recent times you've had several former presidents join together for the uh, hurricane relief efforts around the USA, a good thing. Uh, the two Bushes, uh, Clinton, Carter, Obama, working together. What a powerful thing it would be if uh, five former presidents were to push for incremental steps to bring some common sense before there are another mass shootings across the USA. Do you, do you th are you hopeful? Do you look at the United States and are you frustrated or do you think something could change? Do nothing this time around and there will be widespread condemnation, anger, and in a sense, uh, uh, a belief that the best days of the USA are gone and it's now approaching uh, dysfunctionality and a democracy deficit of the worst kind. Do only one thing, deal with bump stock, and that's also inadequate when you think about it. Uh, why do you have to have unlimited sized magazines to go hunting, to go shooting uh, in a legal circumstance? And of course the answer is, you do not. So whilst uh, uh, they, the NRA often maintain uh, that the problem is not guns, the problem is the power of guns, the number of guns, and the availability of those guns in uh, circumstance after circumstance. And you fail to deal with that, it's going to have implications for your tourism industry inbound from uh, the rest of the world, the rest of the global village. Tim Fisher, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Farid. Up next, lessons from another nation, a nation that has had a homicide by gun rate of nearly zero in recent years. 
What can the United States learn from that country? In our exploration of what other countries can teach America about guns, I want to bring you to a country that is the polar opposite of the U.S., Japan. As you'll hear in a moment, it is extremely difficult to get a gun license in Japan, and even mobsters are all but afraid to use guns. It's remarkable. Now, I'm not saying that America can ever be like Japan, nor should it be like Japan, but I want you to see this system because it has produced close to zero gun deaths annually in recent years. Japan has some of the strictest gun laws in the world. The basic premise of those laws? If you want to own a gun, good luck. Japan's firearm and swords control law states, no person shall possess a firearm, before listing a few narrow exceptions for hunters and other categories. For the brave few still willing to apply for one, they face an intricately designed bureaucratic obstacle course. Just ask Rick Saka, a former U.S. Marine who was living on Mount Fuji when we met him in 2013. He told us he was one of only a handful of foreigners in Japan to legally own a gun. Back at his house, he showed us the binders full of paperwork he's had to deal with over the years. They were a bit overwhelming even to explain. What all do you have to do? <laughs> it's, it's such a... Uh, for, initially, gee, do you want to help me? Saka took over 20 hours of lectures, a written test, a shooting range class, and he passed a criminal background check. A doctor gave him a full physical and psychological exam. He also visited the police station more than five times, where he was interviewed in an interrogation room. Are you having any problems with alcohol? Are you having any problems with drugs? Are you having problems with, with relationships, family, work, money? The police also questioned Saka's family, his co-workers, even his neighbors. And to top it off, he had to give them a detailed map of his home. To produce a floor map of where your, your firearm will be stored in your home um, is kind of unusual. <laughs> and photos that, that actually detail all of the locks that we have to have in there and show that it's done properly. It took Saka over a year to get approved. That's our actual firearms license. And he must renew his various licenses regularly. The intrusion that occurs with the process regularly would never, ever be tolerated in the U.S. It's a process meant to discourage people from even trying to get a gun. And it works. Japan has fewer guns per person than almost any other country. Less than one firearm per 100 people, according to one estimate. And the country's gun murder rate is astonishingly low. In 2015, this nation of 127 million counted only one gun murder. That's right, one. The US per capita gun homicide rate that year was nearly 4,000 times that of Japan. In fact, guns are so rare and tightly regulated here that even mobsters avoid using guns. Known as the Yakuza and often recognized for their full body tattoos, Japanese organized crime doesn't lack for muscle. They have reportedly had enormous reach in business and politics, once described as the largest private equity group in Japan by Morgan Stanley. 
but many don't like conducting business with a gun. Guns are like nuclear weapons. Weapons that the Yakuza has but won't use. A former Yakuza boss sat down with us to give us his take on the mob's attitude. He insisted on wearing a mask but showed us his tattoos and his partially missing finger, another Yakuza trademark, to prove his identity. Guns are kept and controlled by strict regulations within the Yakuza organization, so it's prohibited for members to take the gun out and use it. That's because punishments for gun infractions are very high in Japan, he says. Simply firing a gun can get you life in prison. And if a foot soldier in the mob gets caught with a gun, his boss can also be held responsible. So these days, the Yakuza conduct business using less efficient methods. There aren't specific orders on what weapons we should use, but obviously there's only knives or Japanese swords instead of guns to kill. Jake Adelstein says Japan's lesson for the U.S. is a simple one. If you make strict gun control laws and you assign cops to enforce those laws and you actually enforce them, the rate of gun deaths in the United States would plummet. But you have to do it. Next on GPS, how 3D printing makes America's gun problem worse. First, it was printing of plastic guns that might be missed by metal detectors. Now it is untraceable guns made of metal. It's the next technological revolution coming up. Americans own more guns per capita than residents of any other country, and it brings me to my question. What percentage of Americans own roughly half of the civilian firearms in this country, totaling about 130 million guns? Is it 3%? 13%, 23%, or 43%? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. This week's Book of the Week is The Remains of the Day. Kazuo Ishiguro was awarded a richly deserved Nobel Prize for Literature this week, and his finest work is The Remains of the Day. If you've seen the movie, trust me, the book is much better. It's beautifully written in a Downton Abbey-like setting, but with a story that is about duty, memory, politics, and love one of the best novels by a living author that I have read. And now, for the last look. 3D printed plastic guns have been around for years, but did you know there are ways to mill and assemble metal guns at home now? For under two grand, you can buy Defense Distributed's Ghost Gunner Milling Machine, which will now allow you to mill the frame of an N1911 handgun, or if you prefer, the lower receiver of an AR-15 rifle. These are the parts of those guns that normally have serial numbers so authorities can track them. The rest of the gun, the guts of it, can be easily purchased online, as Wired pointed out. But this company allows you to mill and assemble untraceable, concealable guns without any prior experience from your kitchen. The company's founder, Cody Wilson, told us, quote, The gun world already knows what this means. The fact that we're able to do the 1911 means we're able to do any frame. I'm reminded of a quote attributed to Albert Einstein. 
it has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is A, 3% of American adults own an estimated 130 million guns, roughly half of all civilian firearms in the United States, according to a study to be published by the Russell Sage Foundation later this year. That means 7.6 million Americans own an average of 17 guns each. The Las Vegas killer, of course, was said to have an arsenal of more than 40 guns. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.